0: Perhaps the most memorable encounter I've had with anyone. Being able to build a fully customizable front end customer experience for your customers, but not changing or refactoring all of the backend technologies that your merchandising teams, your marketing teams, your e-commerce teams, your developers are using in a day to day basis. That is the achieving goal of headless commerce. It really kind of starts with the customer experience and the flexibility. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Own Your Commerce podcast, where leading experts, brands, and innovators reveal strategies for e-commerce growth. I'm your host, Jay Myers, and this show is brought to you by Bold Commerce. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Own Your Commerce and our very first episode of 2023. And you are in for an absolute treat to kick off this new year there has been a ton of discussion at, around this movement of composable commerce. And we're seeing the likes of even Shopify who were once adamantly against it, now trying to claim a stake in this movement with the launch of their new commerce components. And and just real quick, not to worry, if the term composable commerce is completely new to you, we're gonna, we'll clear that up in this episode. But long before composable commerce was generally accepted as an ideal approach to building a e-commerce tech stack for your business like it is today, there were pioneers who were preaching the benefit of it and, and the value it brings to large retail brands. And you know, sometimes these pioneers, they were, they were called out on social media and their ideas were disregarded and, and dismissed. But such is often the case with all early innovators and, and adopters of new technology and new philosophies. And our guest today, Thomas Mulreed, he is one of those folks. He has been preaching the benefits of composable commerce long before everyone started jumping on board. So whether you're completely new to Composable Commerce, and, or, and if you have no clue what it is, or if you're a seasoned vet, you will get a lot of, out of this episode. Okay, without further ado, let's get into it. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. Can you tell us who you are and what's your role at, well, my planet, which is now Orium, which we're going to get into? Who are you, Thomas Mulreed?
0: Great to jump on. I appreciate you you having me here today. I'm Thomas Mulreed, I'm head of sales here at Orium, as of a week ago, we've changed our name so we've been under my planet for the last 12 years of the organization and Orium is a services organization that specifically focuses around this movement of composable commerce and we help specifically retailers and B2c brands make the most of both their technology and, and how they're hoping to scale their businesses.
1: We still internally at bold every time we reference Orium, we say my planet now Orium. Because it's still making its, I wonder, I, I think that'll probably take a couple of weeks and then it'll just be, everyone will say Orium. What, what does it mean? What's the meaning behind Orium or why the why the change?
0: It certainly is a big change. I mean, Jason, our CEO, he has uh, 13 years of repetition to, to get rid of. I've got three, so uh, I've not shook the habit just yet. But Orium is coming from the suffix of like auditorium really means the gathering, the place of. We've spent the last couple of years in the organization really, really narrowing in on the type of brands that we help and the type of technologies that we work on, to the point of which we we really do have a, a new understanding of where we fit in the world. And we've recently also announced a funding round that has enabled us to continue to scale and grow and, and benefit the customers that we're serving. And And with that, we really felt that it was the right time to, you know, change the name that traditionally was My Planet. Jason came up with nearly thirteen years ago now. So a new position and something that really fits our place and time in the market as well.
1: I like it. I actually didn't think about it as the auditorium. So it makes sense if you're in the composable space. There's a composer and there's things and your orchestration coming together. It's very much like an auditorium. I, I I think that's a really good way to think about it. I'm assuming that was kind of behind it.
0: Yeah, it certainly was. And and another thing around this space, because it's it's so early in its in its trend, is there's a lot of education required. And really, we see ourselves as being leaders in, in this space in North America. And we want to help educate brands on how to do it, how to achieve it, how to get there as quickly as possible. So we're really putting our hand up to say, not only do we want to help brands achieve this, but we want to help educate a lot of people in the market around how it can be done. And right now, the place that we're gathering is uh, around this composable commerce space. And as much as we can speak to people about it and what it is and how it could benefit their business, that's really kind of where we're focused on.
1: Okay, so I, I definitely want to get into all of that. I, I'm first curious, how did you get into this space? How did you come to, was which was my planet now Orium, and um, were you involved in this before or did you develop this passion? You're, you're kind of, a. I mean, if people listening follow Thomas on on LinkedIn, he's very much a an ambassador for the composable movement. I would say. So where did that come from?
0: A lot of work probably is is really where the root of it comes from. Um, I, I I actually moved to Canada about five years ago. I, I originally spent some time in PwC and spent some time traveling and decided, hey, you know, Ireland is quite a small place, so let's go check out what the bigger countries of the world are doing and. That's where I landed myself in, at the time, a very, very cold Toronto and have since learned to maybe enjoy some more time in other countries throughout the winter and enjoy the summers here. But yeah, I, I spent some time in the fintech space, spent some time in the SaaS space, and then I joined my planet in, in 2020 as a services role, wanting to get closer to the people that I worked with and, and really flex on the ability to solution with customers and, and the work that we were doing. At that same time, the organization you know, had done a couple of headless commerce deployments, which was kind of the known term back then. And and we were really starting to focus in this space and turned our heads towards it. And then our good friend COVID kicked in 30 days after I started my job, which really made things interesting from an onboarding perspective. I was one of the, probably the first people in the world to have to go through the onboarding remotely. But then, yeah, really, as as this grew out, I found... You know, advocating for it publicly and and speaking to people about it in open forums like LinkedIn, it forced me to understand it at a much deeper level. So I do post quite regularly on LinkedIn. I do speak to people quite openly about this, and really, I use it as a weapon to force myself to understand how to contextualize and and speak about what it is that we do in a way that people can understand and care about it. Because the temptation of talking about technology projects is to talk about the APIs and the microservices and how everything is going to be in the cloud. But if you really back it up, the thing that you have to talk about is how it benefits business and benefits people's jobs and ultimately makes customer experiences better.
1: It's like talking to someone who's a motorhead and knows everything about cars and they're talking about the pistons and everything else in the engine. And you just want to know, does it go fast? Does it
0: make noise when you put the accelerator down?
1: Yeah, exactly. Most people don't even lift the hood when they buy a car, probably. People listening that are probably in the composable space, there's people probably thinking about it. And there's people that have no idea about it. I, I We have a wide spectrum of listeners. So can you, how do you define composable commerce um, for for maybe for everyone uh, in those categories? Composable commerce
0: is really an evolution of the commerce space. And if we go way, way back, traditionally, the use case of, of a commerce business was to go and build your own application natively to your company to be able to fit a use case. And then a lot of companies came to market with better offerings that are more focused on business users. So Shopify came to market and really, you know, made it possible to be able to have an e-commerce website and do business in digital channels. And that really, really benefited the business user. And then as we evolved over time, the IT divisions of large organizations started to make decisions of going full one side or the other, as in building their own homegrown solutions or using something like Shopify to really accelerate the business users' uh, use cases. Where Composable Commerce is really kicking into gear is it's separating out sections of that more all in one solution, like a Shopify, to multiple use cases that you can have across your experience and using multiple tools to achieve that. So, in a really simple use case, you would break out um, something like a Shopify or a Big Commerce or even the traditional ones like a Salesforce or an Adobe and you would instead use a content management system that is built just for content management or a search solution that is built just for search capabilities. And by breaking out these core features of your experiences, you can achieve much more as it relates to what your teams can do with those tools, but also the, the customer experiences that you can deliver by leveraging them. And really, it's just an opportunity to give your company more agility to fit your customer's demands, making sure that you don't have limitations on the technology side of your organization.
1: Yeah, I like that. And if I may go back to that motorhead example, as you were talking, I was just thinking, if you think about related, even simpler to a car, there's a car that you can get that has all the factory components, or it could be a essentially a composable build where you use aftermarket parts, you use a different exhaust, different tires, different whatever. And you can use the best in breed of what is the absolute best exhaust, what is the best pistons, what are the best wheels, what are the best brake systems. I, I'm not a motorhead, so I don't know all the <laughs> best examples, but you bring it all together to create the solution that works for you. I think, I think that example holds, holds up.
0: Yeah. And I think like one of the big things that I'll translate that to is it helps you get more. So it's really a part of if you're if you're Adding parts to the factory specs, it's it's how do you get more out of what it is that you're using? I don't recommend you know you buy all of the parts to make a Formula One car if you're just trying to go down to the shops to get milk and bread in the morning. But at the same lens, if you're trying to achieve omni-channel use cases and you're trying to expand globally across multiple different, you know, industries and verticals, if you're running multiple brands, it's really where you're trying to do more for your organization and your customers, that's where it makes sense to buy in, you know, the things that will enhance what you have today. By all means, the factory spec can help you do the things that you need to do. But it's when they start holding you back about your true potential, I think that's where you have to consider other solutions to help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And for the majority of people, a car straight off the factory lot, the way the manufacturer made it is perfectly good. But for another for a smaller segment that demands Extreme high performance in certain areas. They'll want to modify it to a different spec. So that's composable. Now there's kind of a, a blurred lines, and people say headless composable. They kind of throw the terms around. Just to be clear, if someone asks you, how do you describe the difference? How do you how do you just distinguish between headless and composable?
0: Yeah, I, I like to I like to separate the two. I mean, composable commerce is what we look to in the industry as the end state of truly composable technologies being able to plug and play with different things reducing how long it takes to test a new technology in your organization headless is a more traditional approach if you look back at you know the core commerce platforms of the world from the last 15 or 20 years they typically were all in one solutions you have you know The product data that goes in the bottom and then you have a product details page that shows up on the front. The same applies for the entire experience and really what that did is it slows down how companies can create differentiated brands. Where the headless commerce use case kicks in is where you separate the content that reaches your customers from the operational tools on the back end and the thing of which separates those is the API itself. Being able to build a fully customizable front end customer experience for your customers, but not changing or refactoring all of the back end technologies that your merchandising teams, your marketing teams, your e commerce teams, your developers are using on a day to day basis. That is the achieving goal of headless commerce. It really kind of starts with the customer experience and the flexibility. Where composable commerce kicks in is where you've got a much more composable mindset to say, well, you know, that promotions tool is doing a great job, but what if we were to test and try a new one? What if we were to see if it could give us more control to our customers and the promotions and campaigns that we're running? Let's try this one for two months or a year and and let's spin it up. And that's really when you've achieved true composability of that timeline to implement new technologies has come significantly down and your team are able to mature into new approaches and styles to engage their customers as well.
1: Yeah, and I think pretty safe to say that if you have a composable build, you probably are using a headless approach, but not all if you're on a platform, like a monolithic style platform, you may or may not have a headless setup, however you want to say it. It's like, so the two often overlap, but they're not one and the same.
0: Exactly. I, I, I think you can't achieve composable commerce without headless, but you can achieve headless without composable commerce for sure.
1: Yeah. You said it much more eloquently than I did.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I so did, why? I tend to say it 15 times a day. So yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> you salespeople, you're all the same. <laughs> um <laughs> So so someone listening right now is probably saying in their head, why would I want to do this? Why would I want to complicate things and stitch pieces together and build my own e-commerce platform for the doubters listening? And and I know you've been open about saying that it's definitely not for everyone. How do you respond to someone saying, why would I want to do this? It seems like a lot of extra work.
0: I guess there's a number of different reasons. A lot of the time I'll bring it back to what you have in front of you. So when I look at or speak to an organization around a consideration of, say, new technologies or new project initiatives, one of the questions we often ask are, across your teams, how much pain is your technology giving you? If I look not 12 months, but three years out, do you feel like your business is going to be more complex or less complex in terms of how you're doing things? Because being very transparent, composable commerce or or any of this type of you know, headless commerce projects, they don't, they don't just launch in two weeks. The, the, one of the key benefits of a Shopify use case is you can get live really quickly. On the flip side, the upper end of flexibility is your cap. It's really you can launch quickly, but then you'll reach a limit. And the mindset of composable commerce is it might take a little bit longer to get there but really you shouldn't have a limit once you are there. That's really a a measuring factor of how mature are your teams, how complex is your use case, how much more growth do you have in the organization, and are you already seeing signs of your technology holding you back from achieving any of the above? And, And Once you start to break that down case by case, you can really start to build not only an understanding of why it makes sense, but a very clear business case of how your organization will take advantage of this in the next three years and um, the benefit that you can get from
1: it. Sometimes the example I use is you're, you're kind of future proofing your business because in your operations, if, if there's in three years, a different order management software or a different PIM or a different content management that makes sense for your business or can improve your business, it's easier if you're in a composable state to swap in a new and swap out versus A complete migration to a different platform. You can just change individual components. So once you're in this environment, it's much easier than going forward. So I think I I agree 100%.
0: It's really a case of not making up the business case to justify why you want to do it. And if you are selling in one country with one currency and one single category of products, I will be the first to tell you that, you know, investing in a headless commerce or composable commerce strategy is probably not the thing that makes you successful. Instead, you should lean into you know, your offerings or your, your loyalty experiences or your product and your merchandising. But but it really is when you kick into managing multiple brands or you're selling in you know three or more countries at one time, or you have stores, so you need to activate omni-channel use cases. That's really where you can put your hand up. But If you are complaining that your site speed is too slow, but you don't have complexity in your use cases, I still do not recommend a headless solution to get that time to value.
1: Makes sense. When someone says to you, what's a great example of a composable build, do you have a go-to?
0: I I tend to look back to uh, some of the work that we've done with Harry Rosen um, over the years. They've got the lucky advantage of having done this already. They're on the other side of their journey, perhaps. So they get to optimize and scale now that they are on these modern technologies. But they've won uh, the retail project of the year and the Mac Alliance this year. We, we've seen a number of talks from uh, folks like Tovi and, and Ian over and Harry Rosen that really speaks to how much they're enjoying their day-to-day because they're on the other side. And a lot of it starts with the operational pieces and, and the core fundamental platforms that you need. But really now it's consideration of, hey, this thing looks cool. This business model is something that we strive to achieve. You know, how do we optimize for the right experiences for our customers? How do we make sure that our customers are getting the best possible experience from our brand and the offerings that we have? I think, you know, that's a really great example of bridging the in-store and the online and using great technologies to move fast as an organization.
1: Yeah, Harry Rosen's a great, and Ian Rosen, who, you know, if, any, if you follow him, on social media, he speaks quite a bit about composable commerce, which, you know, he's a uh, fashion mogul. <laughs> you wouldn't think he would be so passionate about technology, but he he really is. And he he will be the first to tell you that his his business is is in a better position because of their technology and their tech stack and how their e-commerce is structured. And I know during the pandemic, he spoke a lot about how they had to roll out different things where their, you know, their sales reps could dynamically sell uh, to customers shopping. They were very adaptable and could move fast during the pandemic because they kind of moved to this, I think it was 2019, like just before. So they were kind of fortunate to be in a good position for when they had to be, adapt- and that actually is a perfect example of when, you know, when you mentioned earlier, how it sets you up for future, future-proofing and, and as you reach different complexity and different, business pressures and and you have to change things. Harry Rosen was in a perfect spot during the pandemic. Exactly.
0: I will stress as well, I think one of the big things that's important in that use case is, is retail and how a retailer can't just consider, you know, their homepage through to a payment solution. They also have to think about, you know, things like inventory and different store experiences and how do you connect the customer that's, you know, could one day be in, the Eaton Center buying, you know, one set of clothes, but then browsing through an ad the very next day. And that the omni-channel use cases are where we at Orium really dig down into how to achieve that connected experience with a brand and and not just having these silos of information, which is the more traditional strategy for, you know, uh, a retailer's use case.
1: Do you have any examples of how other brands have embraced Composable or like started embracing it? So that's, so, hey, Rosen, you know, that's like a, a pinnacle shining light of like, okay, here's a brand that's done it excellent. Any others that are starting to embrace it in different ways?
0: There, there's certainly a number of approaches. And I think one of the things I'll mention in that topic is it's not the traditional mindset of, there's this terrifying word in the industry called a replatform. And every, every digital person, IT person, frankly, even the business users are intimidated by it because it brings on a lot of risk to the organization. <laughs> In case you didn't know, if you're replatforming your website, you still have your other job on the day-to-day, which is to run your current state. So it does put a lot of tax on an organization as it relates to replatforming everything that they know and, and understand today. And one of the things around the composable commerce strategy is you really don't have to do everything at one time. It's a path and a journey to achieve Composable Commerce. It's not something that you can just you know, start today and launch tomorrow. So from that perspective, we often work with our customers to identify the level of lift that you take in your first step in the journey. And that really starts with understanding what is your biggest limitation or what is your biggest pain point. And The three topics that we tend to see across e-commerce specifically is around your content, um, the way that you're able to manage that content, uh, change that content, appeal to your customers with it. The second one is often around the search experience or your product listings pages or your category pages. And then your third use case is, is around your cart and checkout. And the ability to customize the, the cart to reduce abandoned cart use cases or add new payment options, um, or in many cases that we're seeing more and more uh, incentivized loyalty programs or couple projects with um, you know bundled product use cases. And if you break down those three of content, search, and then the checkout use case, that's really a good way to start your journey because we're betting down or doubling down on the composable commerce growing in adoption and momentum over the next five to ten years until it's really a, a known thing across the industry. And and we're not focused on making it an awareness thing. The industry will figure that out. Our big mission within Orium is to figure out how do brands achieve this in a safe way with the best practices. And also do it quickly and not having to wait the 12 to 24 months until this thing gets launched. But how do you see value in your first three to six months that can ultimately generate more revenue for your organization and fund the rest of the project while building the level of conviction and confidence that this composable commerce approach is the right thing for your organization
1: to do? So I just want to clarify. So when you say phased approach or A path. What you literally mean is if someone is on an e commerce platform and they want to improve one specific area, like you mentioned, search or, or content management, they start with just that. So, like, they start with just replacing search, then content, then maybe checkout, then maybe other areas. But you're saying that that's generally the path to, and then eventually they are composable, but they don't just migrate and become composable. It's a it's a block by block approach.
0: Correct. There's there's probably a hundred analogies out there between Lego blocks and you <laughs> used the car analogy earlier and it, it really is an, an adding to game of you know, you st- you continue to incrementally improve. There's obviously use cases around the bigger blocks that you'll have in your in your use cases around things like order management or commerce engines and and those lifts, but I, I really do recommend not trying to achieve composable commerce by buying seven technologies in your first project and you know hiring a partner to go and work on it for 12 to 24 months. I, I think the tactical approach to starting the journey is, is the best way to get buy-in across your organization and, and ultimately help people enjoy the experience and get rid of the dreaded replatforming approach that the industry has known for so long.
1: So when someone decides that okay i i'm bought in and i understand the value and i want to future proof my my business and my online strategy where do they start
0: i think one of the first areas is is finding out how to approach this as it relates to your own organization. One of the things that you shouldn't do is try to do this in isolation. The IT team shouldn't make decisions on behalf of the company or the business team shouldn't make entire technology approaches. This really has to be a company-wide effort. So step one, if I'm very honest, is have a candid conversation within your leadership team to say, what are the areas of our business that are slowing us down for growth? And once you start to understand where the pain comes from, you can start to understand resolutions that you can bring in to get that done. From there, I would highly recommend a partner. And and I don't say that in a biased way, obviously. You can you can call me if you need me, but I think it's really a case of, of understanding the speed and value that a partner can bring. Time and time again, we've seen people go out and try to do it projects or change and transformation stuff on their own only to miss deadlines, you know, have people turn over and there's one person in the organization that knew everything. Having a partner that can really document everything and reduce the unknown unknowns of a project can really reduce risk and 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 make sure that your project's going to be successful. And then really it's, it's understanding and aligning with your business, your merchandisers, your marketing team, your content team, they will be the first to understand and know what they can't do that they want to be able to achieve for their customers. They understand their customers the most. They know what they can't put in front of their customers because of limiting reasons. And once you work backwards from what you can't do, you can start to identify what needs to change very quickly.
1: Well, and I agree with talking to someone who's who's done it before and getting good advice. I think some of the questions I often hear is around when connecting the different components, which component owns which piece. So sometimes that comes to, to like customer data. Like we 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 have subscription software and checkout software. And so sometimes if we're using our subscription software in something now, do we take over the customer data? Do we does the customer data continue to live in their CDP, their customer data platform? And do we just update their customer data is there? Do we update it in a platform? Does it make sense to move it over? Like those are some of the questions that come up a lot of when it's connecting to make the right. There's sometimes not a right or wrong. Both work, but what will be smarter long term? as you grow to set it up in a way that you just avoid some future headache i find that's where a company like orium or anyone who's been through it before can add can add some value correct
0: yeah and i and i think it's really a case of not having a one size fits all certainly having a focus in the retail and b2c space we see trends and correlations but going in with an open mind to say how does this business need to function and how does this business need to manage these, say, data flows or, or customer experiences allows us to make sure that the decisions we make on behalf of the customer are going to benefit them for the five plus years rather than, hey, it's going to get us a project launched on time and then they'll live with it from there on in.
1: Have you ever seen anyone go to a composable headless stack and regret it and want to migrate back to a monolithic platform?
0: I've not seen them, although I'm sure they're out there. Um, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think that there was a couple of folks out there that maybe didn't need to. One of the things that I, I would recommend heavily is really consider it across your organization of size and scale. Have the conversation candidly with your whole company to say, are we actually going to do this and are we ready to do this? This isn't the no code, never have to worry about anything ever again solution. It certainly does give your team more control. So I suspect a lot of this is around the change management rather than should they or shouldn't they have done it. You know, you can't, you can't move into a new house and not know the layout before you go in. One of the things that I would stress is this isn't really a thing where somebody just hands you a new website and you start working it even better than you did before. You kind of have to prep your teams specifically on the business user side to be able to take advantage of the powerful tools that they've been given. You know, if I go back to your analogy of the factory settings, if you go and buy you know, a fancy new part for your car and it's going to help the performance go, but they can't find the button to make it happen, what's the point in getting it in the first place? That's a big, a big advocacy around the training, the change management, the buy-in across the organization. I think it should happen at the same time as the work to make sure that you're continuously improving your craft and making sure that your company can scale with this stuff.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So then are there characteristics that are common among brands that do embrace composable that you would identify as they're a good fit? Like you mentioned that there, there may be, I personally don't know a ton that have kind of moved and regretted it and want to move back, but that's usually because there's a lot of careful deliberation and understanding as they move into it. But you mentioned you have this concept that you call multi and I'm, I'm curious about that for understanding when a company might be a good fit for it?
0: Yeah, I think this comes back down to the, the, multi, the multi-use case that we like to refer to is whenever there's more than one of a thing, it starts to indicate where you would have duplicative effort across your organization. Um, if I even just simplify it down to currency or country, selling in multiple countries in many use cases mean that brands run multiple websites if you change something on your Canadian website, it doesn't change on your US website. Your development team have to then log in and change the thing there too. Promotions, products, imagery, words, anything. So if you scale, the solution is often not just to do more things in more places, but instead try to find a way that simplifies it by saying, Well, what if I changed it in one place and I changed it in five? And that really is, you know, one of the, the core and easiest use cases to think of. But the same applies for many other things. If I have stores and I have online, what about you know the promotional campaigns that I want to run in both channels? If I have an app and I have a web, what about my customer data and loyalty program and how I can put it into both channels? Being able to do one thing in one place and affect multiple places in your organization is just a multiplier of efficiency across what you can achieve. And I think that's a good sign. And, and if I look on the flip side, if, if you don't have the multi-use cases and if your business case is built around things like we want our website to be faster or we want you know our lighthouse score to be good, I would not say they are qualifying reasons for you to go and lift and shift your entire technology strategy across your organization. It's very much so finding some optimization of, of what you're using today rather than changing it altogether.
1: If you had to sum it up, as the the main benefit of composable commerce. What would you say it is? Speed. It's definitely about speed,
0: whether it's speed on changing things for business users or developing new features on the IT side or performance across your entire technology stack, it's always about speed.
1: So more more time up front, but more speed long ter- long term though.
0: Exactly. And one of the big things that we we see from a business user perspective is content, is, you know, many, many use cases We're up here in Canada. You know, the, the Canadian website looks the exact same as the U.S. website, and then we find out it's not by choice. They can't change the homepage of the two websites because of the way that they're architected. And now we see a lot of use cases in the composable space with a, with a headless CMS. On Black Friday weekend, you've got a different homepage on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, based on different offerings and stories that you're telling your customers or ads that you're directing to certain pages. And all of that happens without developers. It all happens through schedule content changes that happen at specific times that are th- triggered through the content management side that business users use. And, and it's all about speed. And the faster you can move, the more advantage that you have in the market to differentiate yourself against your competition.
1: I like it. The others that I, I see sometimes are flexibility no vendor lock-in, increased scalability, speed, I think. though And it's. I'm always just curious which one you see as the most. Value. They're all valuable, but <laughs> which one ultimately is the most. So I want to ask a few questions a bit selfishly related to to checkout. We're, we're a checkout company and, and we play in the composable space. And so I, I love hearing thoughts on this. How do you see checkout as a component in a composable strategy?
0: So the, the checkout experience is notorious for the churn or the lost consumer, or in many, many cases, the painful part of the flow. I think the checkout experience is still thought of as a stable thing. People think that you know you get there, there's content, you fill it in, it's your name, it's your address, it's your credit card details, and then you get through it. Best case, it's efficient. It's like, it all works. Worst case, it's many, many steps. There's too much logic. There's errors everywhere. The mindset of the checkout flow for me is really what is in the checkout that makes either the customer experience better or streamlines the experience. And some of the variables that kick into that are just logic. A lot of technologies don't let you build the logic into your checkout flow in the first place. Being able to talk about shipping rates or different payment options or, you know, the time to actually deliver and fulfill the products that you're buying. All of that information should be displayed and shown to the customer as efficiently as possible within the checkout flow because i do i do really think it's one of the biggest opportunities to either help the customer experience be much more elevated as as an overall brand experience or potentially just increase average order value and have more products added or sign ups to the loyalty program so that you can increase your customer lifetime value but the checkout experience is really a an underestimated part of the experience that people just traditionally see it as please don't leave before you buy.
1: And it's oversimplified. I find they think it's just about, I mean, speed does matter and clicks do matter, but it's an experience. It's part of the shopping journey and it's just like retail. Like you can go to a store, have a great experience, but if you have to wait a long time in line and it's a poor experience at the checkout, that's your experience with that brand. And it will taint Everything else that happened in the store. So you can do everything else right, but if it's a crummy checkout experience, offline or on, it kind of ruins the taste in your mouth of of that whole shopping journey. How do you think brands understand checkout performance? Like, I, I they they A/B test everything else on their site, uh, product pages, home pages, everything else. How well do you feel brands understand checkout performance as it relates to like tracking metrics, testing, optimization? Um, what's your sense of where? brands are thinking about that?
0: I think holistically, I get told that the checkout experience isn't good enough is probably the main descriptor of the checkout experiences that we're told about. But I I do think the level of tracking is probably not yet there. I think there's like overall general consensus type analysis, but I don't actually believe that there's enough A-B testing happening today in that checkout performance perspective. And One of the things that I would encourage us to think about is why is there only one checkout experience in the first place? I mean, I can appreciate an A-B test of, you know, a two page versus a one page or this extra field that will give you better information, but could, could impact your performance. My mindset is why does there have to be one? If I'm a VIP user and, you know, I've shopped with you 15 times before it's probably not beneficial to give me the cookie-cutter generic upsell offering, but instead make it really tailored. Or or maybe it's the first time I've ever checked out before and I might not be fully sold on your brand, so you should really double down on continuing to educate me on how great your brand is so that I really do convert. And I think the different segments and audiences that you sell to in a digital channel should be different in a checkout flow based on how your customer needs to understand your brand to get there. And I like to reference, you know, in the B2B space, usually it's a person talking you through the checkout flow and they're handing you the details or the information that you need to fill out and actually explaining it to you. I don't see why it should be any different in a
1: B2C use case. Preach, Thomas. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's our our whole philosophy at Bold, is we think that you nailed it. And it's not just who the customer is, it's even, it's, it's what they're buying and and where they're coming from. If I'm on Instagram and I'm scrolling with my thumb and I see an ad and I, and I click and it opens up a shopping experience for that, from that ad. If it doesn't like speed is the most important thing. If it doesn't load super fast and if it's not really easy to buy, my thumb just has a brain and it just goes back and it keeps scrolling. Cause I'm not really in a buying state. I'm just mindlessly scrolling. But if I'm coming from a Google search and I search for a product, and I'm looking for a specific product, I I can afford more time, I can probably upsell that customer or add some add-ons or maybe try to get them to join my membership program. It's a very different customer, but yet you nailed it. Like Most brands just give the exact same blanket checkout experience to a customer coming from Instagram versus a customer searching for that exact specific product. Or like you said, member, non-member, or why are we showing them all the payment gateways when they use a certain one last time, or payment options. Yeah, is, What do you think holds brands back from, from innovating in the checkout?
0: Certainly there's a rigidity statement that needs to be acknowledged within the checkout flow. Many of the traditional commerce platforms say this is the way, and you accept that way. I would say the second thing is just awareness. A lot of brands just don't see that as the area of their site experience that they should or could optimize. And just education around what are the potentials that could be taken is, is really a big factor for me around having that conversation and being able to walk through it step by step to say, have you ever thought about this really does open, open up the eyes of the folks that are, that are managing this on the day to day.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I want to reference a couple of your LinkedIn, <laughs> your, your posts are great. One of them, uh, you said re- recently we say composable commerce is about scale and flexibility but we revert back to site performance every time leadership asks to measure success can you elaborate a bit on that what do you what do you mean by that
0: a lot of this goes back to numbers people like to look at a lighthouse score or you know uh, capabilities that are measurable on a site and and say hey our our conversion rate would go up if the load times were faster and Spoiler, it's usually the marketing team that add 100 tags to the website that slows a website down, not actually the technology in the first place. But one of the unmeasurable or harder to measure things within a company is really the ability to move fast and the flexibility and scale that you have as an organization. So when there is doubt about buy-in or why you're doing something or you're looking for budgets to really kind of shift and move the approach people have to revert back to well the site performance will improve if we do this and really what it's about is actually you know we can do more with less and we can grow faster in better ways i can't put a dollar figure on this very well right now but the buy in really does come after you see it and that's why the incremental improvements benefit this in a, in a massive capacity and The other thing that we're seeing from this regard more and more is when it comes to scale and flexibility, one of the biggest impact statements is around your employees. We're seeing so, so much optionality of developers and resources these days. If you're on legacy technology, people will quit and they will leave your organization and go join somebody that's doing something cool in the space. And that might not be measurable either, but it's definitely an important sentiment to be aware of.
1: Yeah, and they they have their choice. They de- uh, if you're a good developer, you can work anywhere you want, pretty much.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: What do you see as the future of uh, e-commerce platforms? Do you see them continually becoming more deconstructed or do you see the line in the sand getting deeper and, you know, going more vertical? What, what, what does it look like in maybe five or ten years
0: Yeah, it's a good question. As you're well aware from this conversation, I drink the Kool-Aid of the composable commerce space. So I would be naive if I didn't say there's more of this coming. I I truly believe that we're finding a stronger balance in the industry between the business user and the IT team's relationship within an organization. The future of the e-commerce platform, there will always be a place for a small business to benefit from an out-of-the-box solution that lets them do the things that they want to achieve to grow a business. I'm seeing more and more that the option of a homegrown solution is just not an option anymore. And that's really where this headless and composable stuff started. And over time, we'll see it come downstream to the point where Shopify are talking more and more about a headless offering. And you know, there's other uh, business user low-code solutions coming to the space, I think, we're in for a fun time in the next year or two where we see the maturity grow out and I don't necessarily think you can make a shop in a box the same thing of what a fully flexible technology stack can achieve, but I do think we'll find a middle ground in the industry to say, this is the softer spot for you to land on as it relates to what you need to do in your business. Where I truly believe the e-commerce space is going to go in the next you know, five years or the future I think it's going to be around more agility within organizations themselves. Shopify has seen so many small businesses grow to be massive companies. And a lot of those companies right now are going to go through a phase of maturity. How do their development teams work better with the business? How do they have true you know, scrum and agile practices? How do they make sure that they're prioritizing the customer experience and bringing that back into tickets so that they can improve? It's it's sometimes not about technology that slows a company down from growth. It's sometimes actually about how they can move based on the way that they're set up. And I think the retail space is seeing that more and more as most of these companies are starting to think of themselves as technology companies that sell products. And that's a really interesting transition for an organization.
1: There's Sometimes I, I find it not uncommon to to talk to teams that have as many people on the technology side as they do on the sales and marketing and, and whatever, you know, product and that they, they're making. But you're absolutely right. Before we run out of time, ask a few lightning round questions. I don't know if you read them ahead of time or not, but that's fine. And then we'll end off and, and tell people where to find you. But I have a few fun questions to ask. They're all kind of related around checkout. Are you ready? Go for it. What is the last checkout you completed and the last checkout you abandoned?
0: Uh, the last one I completed was on Amazon. It was a smooth swipe, one click. It worked great. And then four packages arrived at my house three days later. So great checkout experience, crazy delivery experience. The last one I abandoned, probably abandoned it more so because I didn't want to buy the thing more than the experience. One of those moments where you're, you're going insane and adding five things to the cart and then you realize you don't need four of them. I couldn't tell you exactly where it was, but it was definitely about a week ago. And I realized, hold on, that's too much money to spend on a, on a checkout experience. So
1: I, I backed out with that one. What's your pet peeve when checking out? Payment options.
0: I, I get very, very frustrated when I expect to be able to check out in a really simple way. I put in my American Express and, oh, no, we don't take that one. And I've got to go look for my wallet. I've got to go get my card. That's not the Amex. It's it's extremely pain, painful. And I don't know why it's a problem in 2022.
1: Couldn't agree more. What is the best thing a store can do in their checkout? One of
0: the issues I have with stores these days is around inventory. They don't have it in your size. They don't have it in your color. I think everybody's had that experience in the last six months. I think the checkout flow should solve for that by saying, hey, don't worry about it. We'll ship it from our distribution center or from our other store, and it's going to be in your house in three days instead. I'm very, very fed up of the days where you ask for a thing and they say, sorry, we don't have that. Maybe go to another store I think we can we can get past that experience now at this point.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of times I would personally be happy still placing the order, even though it's not in stock and it's shipping in a week or two weeks if I knew if it was coming back in stock. But there's no way to do that. It's not in stock. I leave and then I just forget completely about it and I don't even come back in two weeks. And so then they've lost the sale. But if I could still place it and know that the second it's replenished, it's going to ship. I, I agree 100 that ha- and it's with the supply chain issues that's just happening more more and more exactly yeah. What's your favorite online store?
0: I think I'll, I'll go more generic with this one, but my favorite online experience, Lululemon have have really nailed everything through and through. I mean, you can do everything from alterations to you know connecting your online to offline to getting. Not just spammy marketing campaigns, but subject lines and offerings that actually make sense to what it is that I have in my experience. They've they've nailed that customer experience through and through, and it is actually an omni-channel use case too. Where, you know, if you buy something, you get a thank you when you're opening the door to leave the shop uh, over email, and I think that's really where that's a great experience for an omni-channel use case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I they're very innovative. They I just read yesterday they just launched their new kind of membership community program called Lululemon Studio, which I think is genius there. I find always at the forefront of a lot of, a lot of trends. What is the best advice in your life that you've ever got a favorite quote?
0: One of the things I, I always look back to is having an opinion. If your opinion is wrong, that's okay. Be humble about it. But I've, I've always found a lot of benefit from not living in the middle ground and being able to pick a side and, and back it heavily. Um, oftentimes if you own your commitment there and be humble when you're told you're wrong, that that's usually one of the biggest motivators for me.
1: I love it. We have a saying, in bold, actually strong opinions, loosely held. We want people to have strong opinions, debate them, but loosely held is okay. Thomas, where can people, where, where do you want people to follow you? I, I know you're active on LinkedIn. Are you active on Twitter and other social media? And where can people learn more about Orium? You can,
0: you can visit Orium at Orium.com um, and you'll find out. O-R-I-U-M, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and you can find out a lot of details there. Failing that, uh, my LinkedIn is probably one of the, the main places you'll find me. It's just Thomas Mulread on LinkedIn. And at the very least, you'll get to see me talking about the whole topic of which we talked about for the last hour. Um, at the very best, I might actually help you learn something uh, from time to time, and, and that's really the whole reason I do it in the first place.
1: I'll make sure I include all the links in the in the show notes as well. Thomas, thank you so much for your time. I think it's amazing what you're doing. You're at the forefront of technology that's helping helping brands create better shopping experiences, make more money, and that's that's a win win for the brands, and it's a win- it's a better experience for the customers. You, you know, you talk about your experience with lemon so uh, keep up the amazing work, and I uh, really appreciate. your thoughts on the show take care
0: thanks jake have a great day
1: that's it for another episode of own your commerce if what you've heard has helped you in any way i'd love it if you'd leave us a review in itunes or spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast it's a new podcast and reviews really help spread the word and if you know someone you think that might benefit from this podcast share it with a friend If you'd like to learn more about Bold, visit boldcommerce.com. You can view all our past episodes. And if you have a story you'd like to tell, we'd love to have you on the show. You can apply to be a guest or suggest a guest on our website as well. That's all for now. And we'll see you next week.